Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is Dr. Eric Last, family doctor from Long Island in New York. In this conversation, he shares the challenge of making the diagnosis of COVID, even when you know the patients very well, in a relatively well-resourced community with the best of equipment. You're very welcome to the show, Eric. We're delighted to be speaking with you today, particularly at this very difficult time. We share, I think, a common bond here universally with the impact of COVID right across the world and now particularly in the U.S. What is it like where you are today? I am an outpatient primary care internal medicine specialist. So my view of this is strictly that of an outpatient doc. So when our patients become ill, I am dealing with patients that we have known for sometimes 30 years. And so that colors the relationships that we have and the way we deal with the patients that are coming in. We have gone from December and January where we had this sense that something might be happening and something might be coming to the dread of knowing that there were cases in the Pacific Northwest. And then as things started happening here, we started dealing with this unknown of this disease and learning its presentation and learning its complications and hoping to find some treatment really on a day-by-day basis. And so it became very, very, very difficult. And so we've gone from that premonitory stage in December and January where we were waiting for something to happen to the horrible months of, of February and March and April and May. And then things calmed down. And then we got into this tranquil period in springtime and through the summer where things were calm. And it was a nice change to not have to worry as much, although nothing is the same as it was because we are seeing patients with us in masks and face shields and changing our office schedules. So it's a very different world, but we are not seeing the regularity of COVID that we had been seeing through the horrible months. What is very frightening is that there is now this uptick in cases. There is a significant uptick in cases in New York City. I am practicing in a suburban location on Long Island, so we are not impacted the same way. But there has been an uptick in cases in the city that is now apparently forcing some changes and potential lockdowns in the city. And we are starting to see increased case rates where we are. So it is a, it's, a, it's a frightening time professionally, and it's a frightening time personally. We have three children, adult children, but three children, and, and it's a very frightening time, especially with this background of, of this disease lurking again, waiting to, to come back. And it's a, it's, a, it's a scary time. Yeah, we get that. And, you know, our thoughts and prayers are with you. We all face a very similar situation, similar in Australia as well, although the cases seem to be being brought a bit more under control. The difficulty with COVID is that like so much of primary care presents with symptoms that could be very benign until, of course, it then manifests itself in all its horror. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we, there, we all have stories. And, and again, my experience is as an outpatient doctor is a very different experience than the people that were working inpatient in the wards and in the intensive care units doing a job that I am sure that at, at my age and stage in, in, in my career, I don't know that I could have done. And I have an incredible amount um, of awe in, in terms of what they did in the hospital. 
what was fascinating with us and, and scary at the same time is the way that the disease presented. And there was, there was a, a woman that we saw fairly early on who came in really with, with every case that came in and every call we got, we were concerned about COVID. And it was a woman who called with right upper quadrant pain that radiated to her back and it happened every time she ate a fatty meal. And I was doing a, a little rejoicing and thinking that this was finally going to be a nice, easy, non-COVID case. And she was going to have cholelithiasis and we would figure out what to do. And she went for a sonogram and the sonogram was absolutely normal. And we did some lab work on her and the lab work was, was not terribly remarkable. So we sent her for a CAT scan of the abdomen. And on the CAT scan of the abdomen, the radiologist got a view of her lung bases. And the radiologist called me while she was still in the radiology suite telling me that she had findings in her lower lung fields that were consistent with COVID with absolutely no respiratory symptoms, with absolutely nothing at that, that, that at that point would have made us think of COVID. And in fact, it was all COVID. So it's, it's incredible. And, and the, the challenge was then and remains now to separate out what's COVID from all of the other myriad things that we see every day in primary care. Yeah, it's become one of the great mimics, hasn't it? We know of diseases that do this, that present and mimic other conditions, but COVID is, is definitely one of those. The problem with it, of course, is that in trying to bring this under control, the public health folks are saying to us, anyone who presents with symptoms should be tested. The issue is who? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and now that we are, we are transitioning into uh, respiratory infection season and influenza season, we are all grappling with what are we going to do when the patient calls with a dry cough or a productive cough and a low-grade fever? And how do we differentiate what normally we would have thought of as just being a simple respiratory viral illness from something that could kill them and spread to those around and, and do harm to them? So that's the that's the ongoing issue. I have I have many wonderful colleagues in, in the system that that I work in who are working on figuring out what our approach is going to be to that problem. And it's daunting. It's very, very, very daunting. It is daunting and it's worrying because, of course, for every case that you miss that goes into the community, you're increasing the number of cases in the community, you're increasing the pathology, and you're Worse again, you're, you're encouraging a further lockdown of the system with all the impact that has on people's livelihoods. Absolutely. And it's, it, the, the, the ripple effects of this are so incredible. There's, there are the financial effects, there are the social effects, the, the mental health ripples of this are incredible. And every visit, and I was talking to some, to some colleagues about this the other day, I don't think I have a single visit through the course of a day where someone will come in and this doesn't come up, whether it's the impact it's had on them, whether it's a person they've known or someone they love who's had it. We make a habit in our practice of doing a 10-second public health message for everyone, reminding them that although our numbers are down in this area, that the disease is still out there, that the mask wearing and social distancing have to continue and we try and make a pitch with every visit, but invariably that will then lead into other discussions that are difficult. And whether those are, are discussions about losses that people have had or frights that they have had or near misses they've had, or also dealing with those who are still deniers of the disease, which is difficult. And then there is uh, the, the, the other issues that people don't see. We have a, our, our youngest child, our 26-year-old, 
has Down syndrome. And so her day program that she had been a part of forever shut down through the pandemic and has gone on to become a virtual online program, which has led to its own difficulties. And these are young adults who are now seeing the world as a frightening place. And when things hopefully eventually open up, they have to deal with transitioning into a world that we have been telling them for so long is a dangerous place. How do we get them back out into the world? And that's been a, a challenge in our household and, and in the community. And it's a, another one of the costs of this that has the radar, but it is very, very, very real. It is, and there are some people who can't take that advice or, or somehow seem not to be able to take that advice because they have been told that they can go back to work. These are construction workers in, in our part of the world. There are people who can't afford not to be working. And of course, as somebody said to me recently, you can't put in an air conditioning unit and be social distancing. It's so much more challenging. Absolutely. But of course, whilst these people are doing that, we are we are at risk of spreading the infection. Further. Absolutely. And and then layered on top of that are, are the, the, is the fact that there are still people who just don't believe this. And, and I saw a woman about two or three weeks ago, a patient that I have known for about 20, 25 years. And she and her husband were regular patients of ours. And her husband was one of the first people that we lost in our practice to COVID. And he died at home and he died very quickly. I had seen him via a, a telehealth, a video visit early that morning, and he wasn't doing too badly. And we kept in, in touch with him through the course of the day and we tried to keep him out of the hospital. And then rapidly through the course of the day, he deteriorated and suddenly died. And I saw his widow for the first time several weeks ago. And what she described to me was, was number one, the loss of her husband, who is a, a guy that I've known for a long time. But not only the loss of her husband, but the fact that their neighbor across the street absolutely is a COVID denier, will not wear a mask, and looked her in the eye despite seeing her, husband, her husband's body being removed from the house after he died at home, looking her in the eye and saying, I still don't believe it, and I still won't wear a mask, and I won't follow any of the guidelines. And to have to have that conversation with this woman was just another real gut-wrenching conversation in the middle of a lot of gut-wrenching conversations that we've all had. That's an awful story, and I'm sure it's, it's been replicated across the world. Now, I want to come to the story that brought you to our attention. That was what you wrote in Closler. Can you tell us, in your own words, how that unfolded? Absolutely. It happened in, it was in March. It was about the third week in March. And I got a phone call from a patient who was not only a friend, but was a colleague. He is a surgeon who I have known for years and years and years. And the phone call was that he had been ill for several days with increasing fever and cough. And he had gone to the emergency room and had a COVID test and the COVID test was negative which gave him a lot of solace and he felt better about that, but clinically he was worsening and knew what was going on because he's a physician. So he called to ask my advice about what to do. And we had actually very, probably two or three days before, had had a conversation with uh, some of our leadership about how false negative COVID tests were very unusual. And so the fact that he had a negative COVID test gave us a lot of confidence that we were, were likely not dealing with COVID. 
he had not had a chest x-ray when he went to the emergency room. So my plan was to send him for an outpatient chest x-ray. And if that x-ray were consistent with COVID to send him to the hospital, but if it was either negative or if it was consistent with a community acquired pneumonia, that I would see him in the office. He went to the, to the radiology outpatient center, had a chest x-ray, which was read as a right middle lobe infiltrate. So he and I spoke, he was feeling very ill and I had him come to the office and we were all appropriately masked and gowned and gloved. And he was sick. He had a high fever, but his O2 sat was fine. And he was complaining bitterly of a headache. He said it was the worst headache he had ever had and was in fact the, concerned that it might be temporal arteritis. He was a, he's a surgeon and that was what he thought of. And I saw him and examined him, drew, drew some blood, and we talked about how people with community-acquired pneumonia can be very ill and called in a prescription or, or electronically sent a prescription for two antibiotics and sent him on his way to pick up his prescriptions with instructions that he was to call me overnight if he got worse and that I would check on him the following morning. His lab work came back the following morning with lymphopenia, which at that point we had come to appreciate could be an early sign of COVID, which had me very concerned. And I called him and he wasn't answering his phone. And I started my office hours, saw several patients, called him again, and he still wasn't answering his phone. At which point I became concerned and heard my little voice in the back of my head saying, maybe things are not as good as we had hoped. And I logged on to the hospital computer and there to my horror, I found his name, that he had been admitted to the ICU, that his COVID test was now positive and he had severe COVID associated pneumonia with just an awful looking CAT scan. And he, he worsened, he worsened over a course of, of many days, but avoided intubation. And at probably about two weeks into his course, I got a phone call while I was seeing patients on a Tuesday evening. I got a phone call that I had initially missed. And then when I looked at the, 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 my cell phone after I was finished with the patient that I was seeing, saw that it was a message from my friend, the patient who was in the ICU. And he was calling me to apologize. He was calling me to tell me how sorry he was for having come to the office, for having exposed my staff and my family and me to his now known COVID diagnosis. And he wanted to tell me how sorry he was before he didn't have the opportunity to say that he was sorry. And it was probably one of the most difficult conversations I have had in 30 plus years of doing this. The happy ending is that although he got sicker and sicker, he avoided intubation and ultimately got better and was able to be discharged from the hospital and is now thankfully not only doing well, but is back practicing and is operating on patients and is doing well and is a survivor. But his life was changed and it was another one of those incredible experiences in primary care that I will never forget. That's fantastic that it ended so well. And first of all, it's important for us to say that you got the patient's consent to, to tell that story, which is fantastic. And we were very grateful to yes. him for having allowed this to, to happen yes. because it is a salutary tale for all of yes. us in primary care in particular. Yes. When we see patients who present with what appear to be minor symptoms, who present with COVID, uh, who are COVID negative, at least initially, and then it turns out that it, the, the story unfolds in a very unfortunate way. It, it doesn't happen that way yeah. normally, yeah. of course. 
in in the normal course of events, this would have been a a community acquired pneumonia, as you say, but that's not what no, happened. No, no, no. With the benefit of hindsight, would you have done anything different? <sighs> knowing what I knowing what I knew at the time, I would not have. And I, you know, I I, I make a, a very big habit of making decisions with the information that I have at the time that I am forced to make the decision. And I try not to look back with regret. So knowing what I know now, had I known that there was a, a, a significant risk of false negative from his initial COVID, I may have, have acted differently. Certainly if I had known that he was COVID positive, I would have acted differently. But based on what I knew at the time, I don't think I would have done anything differently. I, I would acted on the information that I had. I felt very badly that I had exposed my staff. I felt very badly that, you know, two weeks later when I got this phone call, I felt very badly that, that my patient, my friend, was as upset as he was at his regret for having come in at a time that, you know, all of his, all of his energies needed to be focused on getting better. Um, which made the story all the more remarkable. But no, I think that that having the information that I had at the time, I don't think I could have made a different decision. I don't think any of us would have made a different decision. You're right. And then, of course, th- there is that old thing that, that you're told in medical school, isn't it? Treat the patient, not the test. Absolutely. And if you've got somebody who's got symptoms that you're worried about, go on that gut instinct that tells you the test is misleading you. Absolutely, yes. and and comes back to the to the old adage about about zebras and hoofbeats and and what you're looking for but the the thing i think one of the the things with covid is that it is not only evolving but it is it it has evolved at at a pace that is just absolutely incredible and for those of us who have been doing this for a long time that to me is one of the most amazing parts of this is that we will will know something one day and 3 days later it will be wrong back in in medical school a long time ago we were taught that if you had somebody with heart failure, you would never give them a beta blocker, and now you are negligent if you don't. But that's knowledge that evolved over a period of, of you know years and decades. This is something that changes from literally from week to week and sometimes day to day, and it's an incredible challenge to try and figure out what the right thing is to do. It is, and of course, the issue is that in some parts of the world, the tests not available either. So you are really working on clinical acumen and clinical acumen alone. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in, and in fact, I am, I am very lucky because I am part of an incredible health system with incredible leadership that actually really from the beginning of the pandemic has been keeping us posted with weekly updates and, and weekly symposia from our experts and from our infectious disease team who are telling us and, and teaching us literally weekly what's going on and are, and are available to us 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even for patients who are not in the hospital. And, and I am extraordinarily fortunate in that I can send an email to one of my, my colleagues and, and ask a question and get an answer in real time. And knowing that I have that luxury makes our jobs that much easier. And I am well aware that that's something that, that is just not available elsewhere. And it's, it's something that's available it to different degrees in different places, but even within the United States, even even within New York, there are incredible disparities, and and that's one of the things that this disease has has shown. 
is the incredible disparity in care, in knowledge, in availability of resources, the incredible impacts of social determinants of health on outcomes and, and impacts in communities. And it, it's kind of peeled away and, and shown incredible changes that need to be made and pointed us in directions that, that hopefully people will listen to. What do you think is going to be the legacy of COVID in your part of the world? What a great question that is. I keep thinking about what I think is a similar time in some ways, and I, and I need to try and make some time to, to sit down one day and, and flesh out the, the similarities. I, I trained in the, in the early days of the AIDS epidemic in New York, and I was incredibly lucky to have trained at a county hospital with a very large HIV AIDS unit that was staffed by incredible people with a chief of the department who was an unbelievable scientist, an incredible infectious disease specialist, and an unbelievable human being. And I, I keep thinking about the parallels between what we're going through with COVID, what we've gone through with COVID, and what things were like in the, in the 80s with HIV AIDS. And I think some things are similar. I think some things are incredibly different. But I am hoping I am hoping that the, the legacy of this is that once we get through it, we realize that there are things that need to be done differently. My fear is that human beings have, I think we have very short, I think we have very short memories, especially for bad things. I think that it's easier when you get through something to forget the bad stuff and move on to getting back to whatever regular life was. And I, and I, I go back to the, the horrible shootings that we have seen in the United States. And I think about the, the Newtown shooting, and I think about the Pulse nightclub shooting, and how for a certain number of days, we're all caught up in the horror, and then it goes away. And that's my fear about COVID, that this will be, this will be something that we get through, and then our memory does what it seems to be programmed to do, and, and it turns off the bad stuff and lets the, the good stuff back in. And I think I think we need to do that to, to some degree, but I think that we need to take this opportunity to realize that this has laid bare so many things in our system that are wrong and so many things that need to be corrected. And to me, that means that these are opportunities to make things better. I think these are challenges that we can face and that we can fix, but we need to do them in a way that allows us to address all the things that are wrong and that there are things that will predispose people to disease that are, are correctable. And there are things that will, will predispose people to having poorer outcomes that shouldn't be. And I am hoping that that's the legacy. I'm hoping that the legacy is that we embrace this incredible technology that we have now that we didn't have in the, the, eight, the, the days of HIV AIDS, the speed with which discoveries are made, the speed with which knowledge is propagated uh, are things that we didn't have back then. And I think those are opportunities. But I just, I, I just hope and I pray that our ability to forget things doesn't get in our way of, doesn't get in the way of, of our being able to make things better. How is the community coping at the moment? Do you think that there is some semblance of living a different life? Or do you think that people are beginning to creep back to the old way of doing business? I think that 
it depends on the individual. I think it depends on where you are. I certainly in the community that I am in, which is is a a, a middle class, upper middle class community. People are for the most part doing what they need to do. People are wearing masks. People are socially distanced. People are realizing what needs to be done. I think the biggest challenge is we certainly have people who are among the deniers, but I think the bigger challenge is that there is a fatigue that has set in and everyone's tired and everyone wants this to be gone. And I think that part of that is probably the the, the blessing of the the speed with which we can disseminate information also feeds into this culture of things happen immediately. I push a button and I can find an answer on Google to any question that I have. Well, if that's the case, then why can't we just push this magic button and make this go away and go back to our lives as they are as they were? And that fatigue is what's causing people to let down their guard. And that's that's difficult. I think that for the most part, people are are doing what they need to do, but the fatigue is a big issue. Yes, I agree. And I think we're beginning to see signs of that also uh, here in Australia with people beginning to be almost annoyed at the fact that there are restrictions to protect us from from this particular menace. We had an uptick recently, as you know, and things were beginning to calm down until this weekend when people started to descend on the beaches again without masks and, and behave in ways that are not going to be helpful in the foreseeable future. And the horror of that is that we clearly can't make this 100% preventable disease based on the, the things that we have available to us now. But we know that we can drive rates down. We know it's been done elsewhere. We know about the benefits of masking. We know about the benefits of distancing. We know about the benefits of people who do the right thing and the awful ramifications when people don't do the right thing. And it's just so simple. It's the 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 wearing of a mask is a simple act. The avoidance of, of crowds is a simple act. And certainly without getting into the, 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 the partisan politics of it, I think that there needs to be at the, the highest levels of not only government, but every community and family and every level, people need to set examples. And I think that that example setting will would change things. And we know that that's worked elsewhere. And the example that people set can help and can at least slow this thing down while it either runs its natural course, or we are blessed with the, 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 the mystery vaccine. But people need to pay attention and people need to follow. Following rules, I think, is hard. Following examples, I think, is a, is a better thing to do. Eric Glass, thank you for your thoughtful reflections. Thank you for your caring, for your patience. Thank you for your insights, for your community. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It, it was a, an incredible opportunity to learn about you and what you do and make me feel a lot better about the mission that people have to do the right thing for their patients. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>